Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys and welcome to the moms and mysteries podcast a true crime podcast featuring myself mandy and my dear friend melissa hi melissa hi mandy how are you i'm doing great the summer is whizzing by i'm enjoying the wonderful warm weather that we have here it's wonderful just going great weather. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also you use the word whizzing i don't know the last time i've heard whizzing like as a speed I said whizzing, something? wonderful. Wait, I said whizzing, wonderful, and weather. You went Not straight on yeah. W's. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was a lot of alliteration there. Um, but yes, it is whizzing by for sure. It's it goes from like, oh, I can't wait for summer to be here, and it's like slow. Everything's slower. You know, you don't have to have the kids at certain places at seven forty five in the morning to being like, oh no, that's that's right around the corner. We're about to do that again, and. Uh, what have I done with my life? I ask yes. myself that at least three times a day. Um, yes. Oh my not gosh. Not pertaining yes. to school. <laughs> yeah. We had to pay some school expenses starting this month, you know, for the kids' school books and stuff that they need next year. And so it's like, oh my gosh, already I feel it kind of like impending, not doom, but just like the <laughs> impending responsibility coming back to us again uh, yeah. really, really soon with school going to be starting up in August because we start back in August here in Florida. So yeah, some people are just getting out of school and we're like, I can't believe it's almost over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely going by. Uh, I've been enjoying uh, the summer though, as much as we can. As we said, it's so hot. You have to stay indoors or be outside in the water. But yeah, 
yeah, so that's, we've just been revolving between those two options. We've been staying indoors and going outside and being in the water and then coming back inside and, 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 and enjoying the cool weather again or enjoying the cool, um, atmosphere again. So, yeah, I've decided my husband is a saint because his AC only works sometimes in his vehicle and he works like 30 something minutes away. And so he'll be like, yeah, my AC didn't kick on again. I would lose my mind. There's just, I would pull over and find a new car. If I had to steal it, I would steal it. Whatever I had to do, I I could not take it. And he doesn't have tinted windows. So it's like, it's an older car. And so I'm always like, I don't, I've got to give you a little more, like, I got to be a little nicer to you because I would be a woman (laughs) on the edge if that happened to me. I I couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I would be on the phone with my husband complaining the whole way home while I didn't have AC just so that I could make sure he knew how upset I was. (laughs) Thankfully, he doesn't do that to me because I'd be like, wow, this is annoying. But I'm like, you could. And I would totally think you were justified. Yeah, for sure. All right. So we have um, a pretty... Big story. I mean, big in terms of like, there's just so much going on. Lots of information in the story this week. I'm actually surprised. Melissa, had you ever heard of the story that we're going to talk about this week? Mm -mm. I haven't either. And that was a little surprising to me because... I like the topic of cults. I in term, I like them, meaning I'm fascinated by them. Right. So we're going to get into it uh, this week. Grief is one of the most powerful forces on earth. It really affects everybody differently. And while some people are able to turn a tragedy into something positive, many struggle down a path of further emotional destruction, and it leads to a vicious cycle of even more grief. Losing a parent is one of the most difficult losses that some of us will experience. We all hope that those that we love will remain healthy and live a long and happy life, and nobody really prepares themselves to lose someone they care about at an early age. But unfortunately, there are millions of people out there who have experienced the trauma of losing a parent, a child, or a spouse long before their time should have been up. For Alan Ross, the loss of his mom was the beginning of the end. Alan Ross is a name that you may not have heard before, but back in the 1970s and 80s, he was a beloved and talented filmmaker with an active presence in Chicago's film community. Alan was a Chicago native, born alongside his twin brother on March 25th, 1953. He and his twin, Brad, along with their older brother, were raised in the suburbs. Alan discovered his love for making movies after attending summer camp as a teenager. His experience there left him with a lasting impression, and from that moment on, he always had a camera in his hand no matter where he went. Alan's first big film project was something he made called The Grandfather Trilogy, which chronicled his own grandfather's last few months of life. This documentary was highly acclaimed and shown at the Art Institute of Chicago and the Whitney Museum in New York. Alan ended up settling down in Chicago, and he became a very active presence in the community there. He lived in a loft and attended the School of Art Institute in Chicago until he graduated in 1976 and went on to become one of the founders of a support network for indie filmmakers called Chicago Filmmakers. In 1979, he began working as an assistant editor for Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and he maintained this role until 1987. Throughout this time, Alan continued to make his own personal films in his spare time. At some point, he was introduced to a German filmmaker named Christian Bauer, and they started collaborating and went to work on seven documentaries together. These documentaries ranged in topic from UFO abductions to a monk that used to be a Wall Street broker. That sounds like the beginning of a joke. Yeah. 
a monk walks into a bar. Yeah, you're waiting for the punchline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So those who worked with Alan said that he was always working very hard and was putting in long hours. Plus, he just had a very charming and witty personality. So he was very fun to be around. In 1986, when Alan was just 33 years old, his mom passed away from cancer and Alan took it extremely hard. He'd always been very close with his mom and her death left him feeling lost. He decided that he wanted to travel the world and do some soul searching to figure out what his life was all about. In 1989 and 1990, Alan worked as a cinematography instructor at the Art Institute. By the fall of 1991, he was still struggling with the loss of his mom and dealing with the immense grief that came with it, so his colleagues suggested that Alan should travel 800 miles away to Guthrie, Oklahoma to visit a spiritual healer named Linda Green. Linda was a registered nurse who got her degree from the Oklahoma State University of Nursing. At this time, she was married to her fifth husband, Dennis Green. She really didn't have a particular background in spirituality or spiritual healing, but in the late 1980s, she had discovered a practice called dowsing, which is essentially just this method of locating water sources, minerals, or objects underground. And this is done through the use of tools such as a divining rod and a pendulum. Linda would move a pendulum around a special chart and ask it a question, and based on whatever way the pendulum would swing, she would have her answer. So according to Linda, the pendulum was connected to the subconscious, which always knows what we really need. At some point, Linda's husband, Dennis, helped her start a nonprofit so she could help educate others about her methods of dousing through self-help seminars. The nonprofit was called the Samaritan Foundation, and people genuinely believed that what Linda was doing was helpful. She really made everyone feel like she had a personal connection with them and that she genuinely wanted to help them. Alan Ross decided to take his colleague's advice and pay Linda a visit, which is kind of wild since it's 800 miles away, and you know he had to be in a very desperate place to be like, okay, off of your recommendation, I'm going to try this. This is, it's a big, it's a big thing to do, I think. Yeah, it's a big step. Mm-hmm. He drove to Guthrie and went to one of her seminars about dowsing, which at first he thought was a bunch of hogwash. He was really skeptical that Linda's teachings could help him, but she assured him that she could help him get over the pain of losing his mom. Alan became enchanted with Linda and fell further entangled in her spell. He traveled from Chicago to Guthrie for seminars every month, which seemed to be working for him. Alan told people in his life at this time that he was happier than ever. But throughout this time that Alan was traveling back and forth for these seminars, things changed a lot for Linda and the Samaritan Foundation. Linda started suggesting and even teaching people that the practice of dousing could also get rid of the evils of the world. And to her, these evils included zombies, the Antichrist, and more. Linda wrote to her followers that vampires had the ability to steal your soul through the phone lines and told them that they should not ever speak on the phone. She also wrote about Bill Clinton, who was serving as the president of the United States at the time, um, and saying that he was an animal mutant zombie. And she also referred to Saddam Hussein as a five virtue zombie. I'm not really sure what the zombie hierarchy is or was, but apparently there's categories. So by the fall of 1992, Linda was telling her students that the world literally depended on mankind adopting her dousing methods to cleanse the negativity from the world. And if they didn't, the world wouldn't survive another 20 years. 
She encouraged her students to relocate themselves to Guthrie so that they could all be close to each other and could practice dousing together, which, according to Linda, was, again, the only way they would be able to save the world. Linda's husband, Dennis, actually purchased an old jail in Guthrie, which Linda said could be used to house everyone. So now this is where you're starting to be like, this is a cult, this is a cult, this is a cult. (laughs) It's one thing to just say, I'm a spiritual healer, I'm going to teach people these things and whatever, but then to be like, you should all move here and we should move into this like old jail together. Jail, yeah. immediately um, suspicious. Red flag right? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this particular jail that they bought and moved into actually had a really long history before this. It was actually built in 1892, and it was the first federal prison in the Midwest. And of course, as it goes with many buildings that are very old, rumor has it that this place is haunted. But Linda was not phased by any of that. To her, this old jail was a place where people could come to learn what she was teaching, and she affectionately named the jail the monastery and thought of herself as a spiritual healer. Do you think jails are just cheaper to buy? Because I don't really understand why of all places you could live, if you're like trying to convince people to join you, you would be like a jail. <laughs> I mean, Your friends I guess and family you, are going <laughs> to... Yeah, I but. guess if you're looking for like rooms you know you want everyone yeah yeah like you want everyone to like be able to actually live there and you can't i mean i assume that buying an old abandoned jail is cheaper than buying an apartment complex (laughs) maybe you might be onto something there and so you might be asking yourself how linda really became all of this and the truth is we really have no idea up until this point linda seemed to live a mostly normal life mostly she was born on june 9th 1951 in oklahoma city In high school, she was part of the newspaper staff and became the editor-in-chief during her senior year. She was also part of the thespians. Linda loved writing. She was so into it that she attended a summer publications workshop at Princeton University during the summer of 1967. In August of 1969, Linda had twins with a man named Terry, who she dated in high school. The couple got married that same year, and we're not sure exactly how long the marriage lasted, but it did end in divorce. After high school, though, Linda continued writing. In 1970, she and her brother put on a three-day-long, three-man version of the 1960s musical The Fantastics, and in 1971, they put on a poem reading where Linda read her own poems, and her brother played his recorder flute while another man played the guitar. There is nothing I would walk away faster from than if I saw three people sitting doing this. I'm out of there. I'm, I'm, I'm just not cool enough to think I could be there with a straight face. It just sounds like what you would expect people to do in the 70s, though. I feel like... It sounds very hippie. It very much sounds very hippie. Like, just like you said, a three-man band. But it wasn't even a band. It was just Linda reading poems and... In a recorder. recorder. (laughs) I know. It sounds... I don't know. It doesn't sound good. (laughs) No. But, I mean, good for them for trying, I guess. So in 1971, Linda was reportedly working at a cardiovascular clinic. She told the Daily Oklahoman that she was the author of an unproduced children's play and a book of poems that was soon to be published. She said she hoped to write a, quote, full-length religious play, end quote, soon, which that sounds fun for kids. At some point, she graduated with a nursing degree. And by the end of the 70s, Linda had been married and divorced a total of three times. In 1981, she married her fourth husband, who was a doctor, and the couple had a son together that same year. 
1983, the Sunday Oklahoman wrote an article about Linda and her job as an RN for Hospice of Central Oklahoma. The article about her included one of her poems called Promise from a Nurse. It's a short poem, so we'll read it. I will not leave you alone to die, to face the hollow night alone. My arms are thin, but big enough to hold you till the terror's gone. Some people, they are scientists, know politics, or how to sing. I only know to die alone must be as lonely as the sea. <laughs> Don't read that to me. If I'm dying, just, just let me die. I just feel like as a poem, I guess it's fine. But in the context of her being like a hospice nurse, I, I feel like it kind of is, I don't know, to me, it just also weird, weird flex to bring in your thin arms in the middle of that story. <laughs> <laughs> so Linda married her fifth husband, Dennis Green in 1984. And this was the man who she was still married to at the time of our story that we mentioned in the beginning. They met while Linda was working as a hospice nurse, and Dennis was a volunteer there who had a background in working with nonprofits and teaching people how to start them and run them. As we know, eventually he helped Linda start up the Samaritan Foundation. Dennis also made a living doing renovation and construction work. Linda and Dennis had a son together named James in December of 1985. It was in 1992 that Linda had begun referring to herself as a spiritual healer and started teaching the ways of dousing to her students and convinced them to move into an old dilapidated prison. Linda recruited the students, including Alan Ross, to rehabilitate the premises. And once it was livable, the students started spending all their time there attending seminars led by Linda. They would study and they would spend the rest of their time practicing dousing. So... She really hit the nail on the head. She not only got them to move there, but she also got them to do all the work renovating no the kidding. place. Yeah. We're not exactly sure how many people Linda had living at the prison, but she did claim at one time to have reached 350 at her max. But Dateline later reported that it was probably more like 50 to 60 people, which seems a little more realistic. But who really knows? I feel like sometimes yeah. you're surprised by how many people kind of fall into these things. So after Alan moved to Guthrie, he still kept in touch with his family and friends by sending postcards, and that was kind of his thing. He would send postcards to his loved ones instead of sending letters, and on these postcards, he would write these little quirky messages. For example, one postcard he sent to his friend Christian Bauer read, quote, I seized the opportunity to seek answers for questions I had not been able to ask, and According to Christian, this might sound nonsensical to some people, but it was a completely normal message from Alan. Another time, Alan sent a postcard that said, quote, I've resigned from life. Can't explain it. I highly recommend it. But then other times, the messages would make Christian wonder what was actually going on with Alan. Sometimes the messages he wrote really didn't make any sense and even sounded bizarre for him, like one that said, quote, the masters will shut you up in a pen with others. Then it will be up to you to find a house to enter. Yeah, all those messages are weird, but that one is... Yeah, that'd be a weird message to different. get on mm -hmm. a postcard from a friend. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so those who knew and cared for Alan had no clue what was going on with him. They weren't aware of all the things that Linda was teaching her followers or that she was telling them that evil forces were taking over and her students needed to dedicate their lives to her teachings so they could save the world from the apocalypse. They also didn't know that Linda was having her students practice intensive dousing all day, every day. They would use dousing to make every single decision ever, including what to eat or what clothes to wear, and eventually they became completely reliant on the pendulum to make decisions for them. 
Sometimes they would douse for days at a time with no breaks, which often led the students to become delusional. The more time went on, the weirder and weirder Linda's dousing charts became. They said super weird things like, get ready for these, vagina clamp, lesbian lice, and zombie mucus. And no one knows what any of those things mean, and I don't want to try to figure it out. Linda also wrote books about dousing, which her believers thought would change the world. Alan actually ended up becoming one of Linda's most devoted followers. He truly felt like she was doing something great and she was helping the world with dousing. Another devoted follower who will come up again in the story is a woman named Julia Williams. Julia was a very valuable asset to Linda because she had a large inheritance. Before too long, though, local police started hearing rumors about people living at the old rundown jail, and they were instantly worried that it was a cult. And when officers called Linda to speak with her, she completely freaked out on them. So they actually launched an investigation into what was going on at the jail and the possibility that the Samaritan Foundation was in fact a cult. This made Linda extremely paranoid. She told the students to never talk on the phone and to stay inside at all times. And we still have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. As moms, we have enough to worry about without worrying about BO2, which is why I absolutely love Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. Lumi is clinically proven to control odor everywhere on your body, from your belly button to your underboobs to your lady parts and even your feet. Lumi is a solution to those sweaty, smelly parts of you and is made with the most sensitive parts of the body in mind, so you can say goodbye to odor-causing bacteria everywhere. And when I say every part, I mean every part. And not only can you use it literally everywhere, it works for a mind-boggling 72 hours. Dr. Shannon Klingman, who was the brilliant mastermind behind Lumi and an OBGYN, encountered countless women concerned about odors below the belt. And after tons of clinical testing, she discovered that it wasn't the lady parts to blame, but rather the pesky bacteria on the skin. And that's when Lumi was born a skin-safe, aluminum-free deodorant that actually delivers on its promises, and not just in one area, but everywhere. With over 150,000 five-star reviews backing it up, you can trust Lumi to keep you fresh and fabulous. Lumi is great to throw in your gym bag or to keep in your purse. I keep mine in my gym bag, and it's great to have on days when I have to go from the gym to the grocery store. The Lumi Starter Pack comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, and two free products that you can choose like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, plus free shipping. I'm a huge fan of the deodorant wipes, but you really can't go wrong with any of it. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi Starter Pack with code MOMS at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code MOMS. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. 
Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we started getting into the story of Linda Green and the Samaritan Foundation that she has set up that is looking more and more like a cult. She has followers, including Alan Ross, living in an old abandoned prison that they have kind of, I'm using the term renovated loosely, but I guess they've renovated or they've at least made it livable enough to stay there. But things got even crazier. So Linda decided that she was actually going to pair up her followers, the men and the women, and marry them spiritually to each other. So Alan was paired with a woman named Jill. Just a few days after these spiritual marriage ceremonies, Linda then announced to the group that she was actually dying. And she said that the only way her life could be saved is if Alan and Jill, I don't know what was special about this particular couple out of the other ones that she paired up, she told them that Alan and Jill had to consummate their marriage on top of her, uh-huh. on top of Linda. Uh-huh. So she, that was what was going to save her life. I mean, just and take a second and soak this in because this is truly the most yes unhinged thing I've ever heard that like this is going to be how you save how you save this person. But also the responsibility. If you're really believing this lady and she tells you right. you have to do this and you believe everything she says – you think you'd have to do this. And you just met and married this person spiritually like three days ago. And now now you're being told that the – it's just – I can't even imagine it. I can't. Um, but 
Alan and Jill and everybody else that was living there all trusted Linda. They believed in what she was saying. They were hanging on her every word and they were willing to do whatever it took to save her life. So that they did what she asked. They did what she said. And afterwards, Linda said that she had been cured of her illness. So she... Wow, it worked. Yeah, it worked just like that. Um, after this happened, though, she started paying extra special attention to Alan. And eventually, they started sleeping with each other. And Linda then had Jill removed from the compound so she could have Alan all to herself. So that's kind of like, wow. <laughs> I just feel like a lot has happened <laughs> in the last like, like, wow five-day period. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's kind of like, wow, is the best way to describe <laughs> what yeah. is happening Because I right get now. the impression that all this happened like in the course of like, a week or something. So yeah. I'm like, it's just a lot that's happened. Uh, so if you're wondering, though, how Linda planned to even have this relationship with Alan, because as we said before, she was actually married to Dennis, who she had a son James with. Um, don't worry, she had all that figured out. She told Dennis that she had multiple sclerosis and she wanted to divorce him so that she could live quietly in her final days. So Dennis actually granted her a divorce and he gained custody of their son, but they remained in close contact with Linda and she was still able to see her son James pretty often. Alan started leading seminars with Linda, and he was acting sort of as a co-leader to her, except the only difference was he actually believed that he was helping these people due to the fact that he himself was obviously brainwashed already by Linda. So he is not thinking, I'm going to work with Linda to control the minds of all these people. He's right. thinking, like, I'm actually doing this. You know, He's fully invested and believes that uh, he's helping for a good cause. It helped him. So he sees that as helping other people. Right. Yeah. Yes. Eventually, Alan and Linda became spiritually married to each other. Investigation discovery said that Dennis did continue living in the monastery and apparently got along pretty well with Alan. The Samaritan Foundation seemed like it was flying under the radar for a little while, but that would soon change. On October the 14th, 1993, attention was drawn to the foundation when a Massachusetts man filed for emergency custody of his two children who were apparently staying at the monastery with their mom. So to elaborate on kind of what happened here, their mom, who was named Nellie, learned about the Samaritan Foundation through some literature that she had gotten in the mail about 18 months earlier. According to her husband, Jonathan, Nellie started acting very bizarre after that. She started swinging a pendulum over everything, including their children, and talking about how it removed evil. Nellie would put circular drawings under the family's groceries because the foundation claimed that barcodes were evil, and she would put this same circular drawing under her children's pillows, we can assume to ward off evil or what she thought was evil. So Nellie's family was really just flabbergasted at her new behavior. She had always been a very sweet and wonderful mom, but now it kind of seemed like she was under some kind of hypnosis or some kind of spell. It was totally out of her normal character. At some point in September of 93, Nellie told Jonathan that she wanted to go to Guthrie to attend a 10-day seminar in person, and she was you know, pitching this as the opportunity and the chance of a lifetime for her. So on September 2nd, she actually left for the compound with both of her kids in tow, and once they arrived, Jonathan could hardly even get in touch with them. He had to leave messages on Linda's phone most of the time, and he only was able to speak to his family for a total of 12 minutes between the dates of September 2nd to October 14th. He was understandably very concerned for the safety of his children, so he ended up going to a judge and told them everything and asked for help in getting custody. 
Jonathan was granted temporary custody of the kids, and he traveled to Guthrie on October 14th for an emergency hearing. After Jonathan and Nellie testified about what was going on, a judge ruled that the kids did need to go back to Massachusetts with their dad because that was the state that had jurisdiction and it was also the children's home state. Nellie decided to let the children go back with their father and she stayed in Guthrie and remained in the cult. She later started dating Linda's ex-husband, Dennis, and they got married. The emergency custody battle over Nellie and Jonathan's children was a nationally publicized thing, and at that point, the Samaritan Foundation became public knowledge for the very first time. By 1995, after just a few years, the Samaritan Foundation cult started to crumble due to a culmination of factors and events. By this time, the Department of Human Services had gotten involved and shut down the jail where the cult members were living. Then, in April of 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing happened, and the members of the Samaritan Foundation, including Alan Ross, were questioned about their potential involvement. Jonathan and Nellie's son, Rami, later said that he thinks an article about the custody battle is really what started the downfall of the group. The only people who really stayed at that time were Alan Ross, Dennis Green, Julia Williams, and Rami's mom, Nellie. Most of the other members were sent away by Linda, who told them she wanted them to be part of her group, but just in other areas, so she told them to leave. Once the majority of the members were gone, Linda decided that the smaller group of them should just move, so she consulted the pendulum to figure out where they should go, and before they knew it, they were headed off to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Linda bought a house near downtown, and in May, she moved into it along with Alan, Dennis, and Julia. We're not sure, though, if Nellie moved into this house or not at that time, but she's still kind of around. And in Cheyenne, Linda, Alan, and Julia ran a business out of their home called Amber Press, whose purpose was to publish Linda's books on dowsing. Linda had the members use different nicknames and aliases for reasons that are unclear, but authorities assume it was just because she was generally a very paranoid person. Julia ended up buying herself some property in Loveland, Colorado, and hired Dennis to build her a cabin there. Dennis and James, and James is the son that he had with Linda, moved to Colorado to start on the build while living in an RV. Again, we don't know where Nellie was at this time. We're not sure if she moved with them or not, but it's possible that she was there. During the time the cabin was being built in Colorado, Linda and Julia would go visit and see the progress about once a month, and Dennis would come back to Cheyenne once a month as well. At this point, Linda didn't really have as much of a hold on the remaining Samaritans, and Alan was even starting to pick up on some of these red flags and realizing that maybe Linda wasn't all she claimed to be. And this might be why Alan agreed to leave Cheyenne in the fall of 1995 to go help his friend Christian film the documentary on the Mississippi River. This was the first time Alan had seen a person outside of the cult in years, and by the time they were done filming the documentary, Alan had decided to leave the Samaritan Foundation for good. While Alan was away filming, Linda and Julia started complaining that someone was trying to steal business from Amber Press. Julia believed that Alan was partly responsible for this, along with two of Linda's other followers. Additionally, Julia and Linda both began to think someone was trying to also poison them. Julia was convinced that Nellie was also in on all of this and wanted to murder her and Linda in some grand conspiracy scheme. Julia also thought that Alan and Nellie were having an affair. We don't know if they were. It doesn't seem like they were from the research, but it kind of just speaks to the paranoia that Linda and Julia had. 
Also in October of 1995, Julia told Dennis that she had to go to St. Louis to bring Alan back to Wyoming because he was having another affair there. The reality was that Alan was shooting that documentary with Christian that we were talking about. In a later interview with Dateline, Christian said that one day when he and Alan were in New Orleans filming, Linda and Julia actually showed up and a screaming match between Alan and Linda ensued. This was the first time Christian had ever even met Linda, and he was shocked to see that she was nothing like he was expecting. She was very demanding and controlling, not the kind of kind and caring spiritual healer, you know, type of person that he had envisioned. Alan ended up leaving with Julia and Linda that day, and Christian never saw him again. On November 21st, Dennis arrived in Cheyenne to do some work at the house there. The plan was to stay over until the next day. His son, James, who was nine years old, was also there, and Alan, Linda, and Julia were there as well. On that day, Alan and Dennis were working on a project in the basement, and while they were working, Alan asked Dennis for some advice about what kind of vehicle he would need to haul his belongings and what kind of equipment he would need, and that made Dennis think that Alan was considering moving out of Cheyenne. The next day, Julia came into the basement while the two men were down there working, and she told Alan that she and Linda were going to go to Guthrie so that they could sell a rental house that she owned there, as well as selling the monastery. When they heard this, Alan became somewhat worried because a lot of his valuables and personal belongings were still there stored at the old jail. Between 2 and 4 p.m. on November 22nd, Dennis and his son James left Cheyenne and went back to Colorado where they were building the cabin. They arrived there at around 6 p.m. and were seen by a neighbor. A few days later, on November 25th, 26th, and 28th, Linda went to the cabin build site. And while she was there, she insinuated to Dennis that Alan had left Cheyenne and run off with a lover, or that he was, quote, on a beach getting tan with Laura, who was actually another Samaritan follower. Linda sarcastically stated that she hoped Alan was enjoying the money that he stole from her. At some point during these visits, Linda ended up telling Dennis something different. She claimed that she and Alan had actually gotten into an argument that ended with Linda shooting Alan and killing him and then burying him in the basement. Dennis just didn't believe Linda when she told him this. He thought Alan just went back to Guthrie to get his things. But on November 29th, Linda called the police and alleged that she'd been robbed of about $10,000 and she was fearful that there were people who wanted to hurt her. She named Alan and two other Samaritans, Laura and Mary, as being out to get her. Officers spent two hours at the house but found no evidence that any crime had been committed. After this, Julia and Linda made numerous other reports about suspicious activity that was happening at or near their Cheyenne home, but no evidence of such activity was ever found. Also in late November, Dennis was contacted by county authorities in Colorado because the proper permits had not been obtained to build the cabin, and so they ordered him to stop construction. Around the same time, though, Linda and Julia had secured a rental house in Loveland, Colorado, which was near the build site, and they moved there. The rental house was in Julia's name. She had rented it under the name of Julia Hill. Meanwhile, Dennis and James continued to live in the RV in Loveland, but when it got too cold, they took the RV and moved to Kansas City. And that's around the time that Dennis and Nellie got divorced. There are so many people in this story doing so many things all over the U.S. It is wild. I was actually talking with um, our researcher Haley about this one, and she was telling me how it was just such a complicated story to put together because of like all the people 
involved in the story, but then they're like married to each other, but also living in different states and places and traveling back and forth. And then it's like the same people are like swapping spouses. So it's kind of hard to kind of keep up with like what's going on. But at the end of the day, I feel like the main takeaway is that like it was a cult. They were all involved in this cult and just everybody was kind of doing things together, but also separately. So it was like there was some secrets happening, but then at the same time, they were all supposedly one unit. But yeah, it does get a little bit um, hard to kind of understand like everything, all the moving parts that were going on. Yeah. So before leaving for Kansas City, Dennis and Julia made a trip to Cheyenne so he could help remove a large copier and install a piece of pegboard over the entrance of the crawl space at the Cheyenne house, not knowing that the body of Alan Ross was inside that crawl space. By this time, Alan's family and friends were taking notice of his absence and they were starting to really worry about him. The last time anyone had heard from him was when he was wrapping up the documentary he was filming, but he hadn't sent any postcards or returned any calls since then, which was very unusual for Alan. His twin brother Brad said that Alan never would miss a holiday or a birthday. So when nobody heard from him at Thanksgiving that year, they just had a really bad feeling that something was wrong. Then Christmas came and went, and Alan's family finally realized that they needed to actually look into his whereabouts. Police were asked to go check up on Alan, but Brad said they didn't really take it that seriously. At some point at the end of 1995 or early 1996, Linda was actually committed to a psychiatric ward for reasons that we're not really sure of, but it may have been due to paranoia. Court documents state that she suffered from paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. While she was in this facility, though, Linda sent a fax to Dennis in which she accused him of killing Alan. That's when Dennis thought back to that conversation they had where Linda told him that she had murdered Alan and buried him in the basement in Cheyenne. So now at this point, Dennis is starting to catch on and starting to think that Alan may actually have been murdered and not just run away after all. Dennis ended up calling the Cheyenne police on February 21st, 1996, and reporting that a possible homicide had been committed. He told them that they should go check out the crawl space in the basement of that house in Cheyenne for the body of Alan Ross. Investigators did go to the house in March, and they dug around a little bit in the crawl space, but they didn't find any bodies. The officer did note that there was an area of the crawl space that had been covered with concrete, though. There was two detectives there, and they spent about 10 to 15 minutes looking around before they left. They ended up entering Allen into the missing persons database, and that was pretty much it. The investigation kind of ended there. When the police failed to find any evidence that Allen was dead or in danger, his friends and family kind of breathed a sigh of relief. They thought maybe he had just run away, and maybe he was just hiding from Linda. So they took the next step and hired a PI, and they also got some psychics involved, but unfortunately, nobody was able to get any more answers. It was eventually learned that Alan hadn't touched his bank account since November of 1995, and at the time they figured this out, they realized that there was still $8,000 sitting in the bank account. Later in 1996, Guthrie, Oklahoma police got a fax from Linda alleging that Dennis and another person had killed Alan and, of course, made sure she included that she had nothing to do with it. She said that this happened in Cheyenne in 1995 and also said that Alan's body would still be found there. Although this fax did seem pretty off the wall, officers didn't have any proof that it was true, so... Once again, their hands were kind of tied and it didn't really go anywhere. 
I'm blown away by how much faxing comes into this story. It we have more faxing to do. There is so faxing much. Faxing was fax. the thing. That was that was the thing back then. <laughs> yeah, it really was. So in June of 1999, Julia went to the police and said that Alan had been found. She was told by a detective that Alan Ross was still a missing person, but Julia insisted that a some psychic lady told her that Alan was buried in the city dump. So if you're wondering what the deal with Julia is, this is what Linda and Dennis's son James had to say about her later. Quote, I saw Linda making all the decisions and Julia was basically the financial center and basically just kind of backed up my mom in whatever she said, end quote. He also testified that Julia and his mother were always together when he was with his mother. His observation was that Alan and his father got along very well and he never saw any type of disagreement between them. James also said that at one time when he was at the cabin site, Linda pulled a 9mm pistol out of her purse and shot the lock off an RV trailer. He said he saw her with a gun quite often and that she carried it in her purse. James never saw any other gun except his mother's. Investigators later found out that Julia had purchased a Glock 9mm pistol in the summer of 1995, so that's probably the gun that Linda was carrying. For several years, Alan's friends and family were left wondering what happened to him and where he was. In 1999, they decided to work together to try finding him by making a documentary called Missing Alan. The family helped with the research while Alan's friends Christian and Galen worked on things like filming and conducting interviews. Almost immediately after Alan's friends started working on the documentary, they started receiving faxes of documents and a letter which seemed to be written by Linda. The letter read, quote, After Alan was shot, he was dragged, perhaps downstairs. I saw Dennis carry two sacks of concrete, which were by the back door, downstairs, end quote. So after getting this letter, Alan's loved ones wanted to talk to Linda themselves and really find out everything they could, they could know about her. So they found out that her legal name was Linda Green and that she had been married five times, which was interesting to them because she had told Alan that she was only married twice. They also learned that Linda was an RN in the past and she had authored books and sometimes wrote poems and acted. As for the Samaritan Foundation, they found out about the dowsing, the fear of vampires and phones, zombies, and more. Alan's friends were never able to locate Linda themselves and former members of Linda's cult didn't want to talk either. So a while later, Alan's friends were contacted by the Cult Awareness Network, which I didn't know existed, but is pretty cool, who said that if Alan was in fact with the Samaritans, he was in serious danger. They said that another Samaritan member had taken her own life recently by jumping in front of a train in Oklahoma. After learning this, Alan's friends believed Linda was pure evil and they were afraid for their own lives, but they pressed on and continued making the missing Alan documentary and digging for the truth. Alan's friends went to Oklahoma in the spring of 2000 to search for evidence. They searched around the garage of a home that Linda previously lived in, and they found Alan's film camera and some of his other belongings. These findings confirmed that something was seriously wrong. They knew that Alan would never leave his camera behind. Next, they searched the old jail and ended up finding Alan's car, which was abandoned there. This was another sign that something terrible had happened to him. They were sure that Alan was dead at this time, so they ended up calling his brother Brad. And a couple of days later, Brad flew in to Oklahoma, and the group decided to actually open up Alan's car and look inside. They were all really prepared to find his body in there, but there was nothing inside. 
Allen's loved ones searched the basement of the jail and noticed that one room had been covered in fresh concrete, but they didn't find Allen. They searched all over town for any sign of him, but came up empty-handed every time. Meanwhile, they continued to try tracking Linda down, but it seemed like she was intentionally hiding or on the run. But then one day, Linda actually popped up. She called Alan's friends, Linda called Alan's friends from an undisclosed location and said that she was now going by the name Genevieve. I don't understand the purpose of calling them and telling them what your fake name is. Yeah. <laughs> I just personally am surprised this wasn't done by facts. Yeah. So she explained her side of things regarding what happened to Alan. She said that he had been the subject of a mind control experiment that got out of hand. So specialists had to kill him because he was no longer under control. She warned Alan's friends to stay away from the whole story because the government and the CIA were involved. So I guess she's trying to do damage control and like throw them off the trail. But like obviously to any like person, you know, of sound mind, they're going to say, okay, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And at the end of the day, you're still saying he's dead, that somebody has killed him. Like you're still, that's still part of this. Right. So obviously his friends didn't buy it, um, didn't buy her story exactly, but they did think it would probably be a good idea to try to get the police involved again. So they went to the Cheyenne Police Department and told them everything that they had found. They told them about Alan's belongings they found, his camera, his car, and they mentioned that his bank account had not been used for years and still had significant funds in it. So obviously, if he were alive, he would want access to that money. And of course, they told the police all about Linda. Investigators did listen to everything Alan's friends had to say, but ultimately, they decided that it still wasn't enough evidence to warrant an investigation. They said they already had searched that Cheyenne house and they found nothing. So at this point, they said there was really nothing that they could do. Alan's friends returned home and they focused on putting together their documentary. But as one last ditch effort, Alan's twin brother, Brad, called one of the detectives in Cheyenne and pretty much begged them to just go look around the Cheyenne house again. The officer finally agreed, but said that if he didn't find anything, this case was going to officially be closed. Before going to search the house, police talked to Julia, who owned the home, and they told her what they were doing. They told her that they were specifically going to look in the basement for the body of Alan. Julia responded that this was just another example of slander and harassment, and that Dennis had been putting her through so much, and it was all part of this conspiracy against the company Amber Press. Detectives looked into it and found absolutely no evidence of any type of conspiracy against Amber Press or any link between Amber Press and Dennis in any way. But there is still more to get into with the story, and we're going to do it after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsor. And now back to the episode. Before the break, the family and friends of Alan are still asking the police to look once again into this Cheyenne house. They're talking to Julia, who doesn't really want to let them, and they 
she's thinking there's some big conspiracy going on between Dennis and uh, their company, the Amber Press. Police don't find anything, so they're just going from there. So the Cheyenne detective searched the house there on July 17th, 2000, and he saw something sticking out of the ground in the crawl space. As he got closer, he realized it was a shoe, a black Converse high top, and things took a sinister turn when the officer saw that there was a bone inside the shoe. A thin layer of concrete covered the area, so more investigators were called in to remove it. Finally, the body of Alan Ross was discovered, along with the shell casing that had possibly been fired from a 9mm Glock handgun. Police later said they couldn't explain why they didn't find Alan's body in the first search years earlier. And of course, this is very frustrating for Alan's family and friends. It's been almost five years at this point, and really, this case could have been solved back in 1995 or 1996 if they had searched for more and collected more evidence. It's wild to think his shoe and part of his bone was exposed, and no one, no one saw it five years before. It was determined through an autopsy that Alan had been shot in the head while the shooter was standing over him and that his body was encased in concrete and had been in that crawl space since 1995. In late January of 2001, two investigators went to New Orleans to interview Julia and Linda in person over the course of three days. So what we know about these conversations is that Julia is the one who gave up the most valuable information. She said that back in November of 1995, Linda wanted Julia to go down to the basement where Alan and Dennis were working and tell them that she and Linda were going to Guthrie to close up the properties there. Julia said that Linda just wanted to provoke a reaction from Alan. She had no intention of actually going to Guthrie. And Alan did react. He begged Linda to allow him to go get his things. Julia said Linda then went into her room to watch TV and later, she and Linda went to a hotel and then later separate hotels. Julia said nothing about Alan being shot or ever seeing his body. She just said that all of his belongings were gone when they returned to the home the next day. Julia told investigators that she found out Alan was dead in December of 1995. Linda told her that Dennis had shot Alan, and she also talked about this conspiracy to steal from Amber Press. Nothing Julia said about what she knew implicated herself in the crime in any way, at least for the time being. Alan's friends continued filming their documentary after his body was found. They found Linda in the spring of 2001 living in New Orleans, and surprisingly, she actually agreed to be on camera for an interview. By that time, she was looking pretty rough. She had become extremely paranoid and was struggling with alcoholism. When she was asked to share her thoughts about Alan being killed, she said, quote, It's beyond my framework of reality how somebody could do something so terrible. She said that on the day before Thanksgiving of 1995, Alan and Dennis had gotten into an argument inside the Cheyenne home. She said they were arguing about money that was made from selling Linda's books. She said that Dennis shot and killed Alan that day and then said that he would kill Linda and their son if she ever talked about it. After the visit from these investigators, Julia and Linda went back to Cheyenne on March 21st, 2001, and each of them were interviewed separately at the Cheyenne Police Department on March 22nd. Julia gave a statement that was consistent with the one that she had given in New Orleans. She repeated pretty much everything she said before, except she left out the part about finding out that Alan was dead back in 1995. She said she didn't know for sure that Dennis had shot Alan, but she said that she, quote, believed he did. 
Before the two women left town, officers took them back to the house for a walkthrough. And during this walkthrough, it was noted that neither of the women had any type of visible or emotional response, even when they were taken down to the basement crawl space. After this, Julia did continue to keep in contact with the Cheyenne Police Department, and they would communicate by Melissa's favorite method. They would send facts back and (laughs) forth to each other. Sure, Um, sure. But with each fax that she would send, Julia's story about what happened to Alan kind of started to evolve, and eventually it got to a point where she just had this completely ridiculous long list of possible motives for why Dennis might want to kill Alan. And one of the reasons on that list was that Alan had been having an affair with Dennis's then wife, Nellie. I mean, at this point, they're all with each other, so I can't imagine that would even kind of be a motivation. It doesn't seem like anyone really cares. That doesn't seem like something you can undo. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So unfortunately, though, we'll never know what Linda said in any of her statements to police in 2001. The contents of those interviews were never allowed to be seen in court because Linda died from liver failure on March 18th, 2002. According to her family, she died from excessive drinking, which she did to quiet the voices in her head. Linda was living in Arkansas at the time of her passing. The news of Linda's death was a huge blow for Alan's family and friends, and they now feared that no charges would ever be filed in his murder. The same day that Linda died, Julia called Cheyenne police to let them know, and she said that she wanted to come to Cheyenne and talk to them. Julia told investigators yet another story. But this time, she said that she was actually present when Alan was shot. She said she wasn't sure what date Alan was murdered, but she knew it was sometime between November 22nd to 24th of 1995. Two shots were fired, which Julia said she heard but didn't see. And when she went downstairs, she saw Dennis holding a gun and Alan lying on the floor. Julia admitted to helping Dennis carry Alan's body to the basement using sheets or blankets, and she also helped clean up. Julia said she was afraid Dennis would kill her if she didn't help. Julia's story provided no explanation for where Linda or her son James were at the time of the shooting. And she said Dennis shot Alan because he molested James, which is just such a crazy thing to start admitting this far into the story. Like now you're you're throwing everything out there and this guy's been killed for goodness sakes. Right. So Julia had originally said she didn't know where the gun was, but then she said that she hid the gun Alan was shot with. She claimed she took it to Kansas City and put it behind a hotel. Of course, police looked for it but didn't find anything because it's been a really long time at this point. So who knows, you know, what actually happened. Yeah. Investigators did question Julia further. And at some point, it was maybe suggested to her that she was possibly substituting the name Dennis in her story for the name Linda because it sounded an awful lot like she was talking about things Linda did and not things Dennis did. So Linda denied this, and she, you know, said she wasn't telling a fake story. Um, She did state that her memory had been compromised, whatever that means, and did say that she was no longer able to continue with this interview and with this line of questioning, which how convenient that um, all of a sudden your memory has just been compromised and you no longer want to go on. So Dateline later interviewed Julia, and she also told them that Dennis was the killer and that she would be willing to take the stand and even testify against him. Detectives looked into Alan's murder for the next 11 months, and eventually they were able to completely rule Dennis out as a suspect. They settled on the theory that Linda murdered Alan and Julia assisted her in hiding the evidence and the body. On February 27, 2003, Julia Williams was arrested and charged with being an accessory to the murder of Alan Ross. 
She was 49 years old at the time of her arrest. Julia's trial began about a year and a half later in November 2004. Prosecutors in the case were not allowed to refer to the Samaritan Foundation as a cult, and they were also not allowed to bring up any of Linda's statements to the police or anything she said to Dennis, like from that time that she had told him about shooting Alan. The state said that Julia was still just protecting Linda, but that Linda was the real killer. They pointed out that after years of investigation, they had ruled Dennis out as playing any part in Alan's murder. But on the other hand, Julia's statements to the police had changed and evolved over time. But eventually, she still came out and admitted to helping conceal evidence. Like you were saying, at, you know, the end of the day, whether you're telling the truth or not, like you have people that are admitting they know someone is dead, but then it's like, it doesn't matter anything you say after that. The fact is, like, you're admitting, like, you either helped or you knew about it and, like, you know, whatever else you tell us. Like, we need to focus on these, like, important facts, like the fact that you're admitting that you were, you know, that you know that this person, you knew this person was dead or had been killed. There was a video played for the jury of Julia admitting that she had carried Alan's body to the basement and that she had cleaned up blood. The theory that was presented was that Alan was planning on leaving the foundation and leaving Linda, of course, for good and going back to Chicago. This made Linda upset, so she made up the story about Alan embezzling money and then convinced Julia that it was true. After Dennis left that day on November 22nd, Linda confronted Alan and demanded to know the truth about whether or not he was planning on leaving. At some point, Linda shot Alan once but did not kill him. Then Julia came down the stairs, and that's when Linda fired a second shot at Alan as she was standing over him. The two women then drug his body to the basement and buried him in the crawl space and then cleaned up the crime scene. The prosecution had Dennis as their star witness. He and Linda's son James also took the stand, and he talked about seeing his mom walking around with a 9mm pistol. Julia's defense didn't call any witnesses or present any evidence. They told the jury that Julia had consistently told police that Dennis was a shooter and that the prosecution's theories were not proof that Julia was involved and there were still no concrete answers in this case. Julia did not take the stand in her defense. After deliberating for just an hour, Julia was found guilty of being an accessory after the fact to murder. She was sentenced to serve between 24 to 34 months in prison. She also appealed her conviction, but it ended up being affirmed. Julia served her sentence and was later released. And even though she spent time behind bars, Alan's loved ones still don't feel like they had closure. They still had so many questions about what actually happened to Alan. In 2001, the documentary that Alan's friends made, Missing Alan, was released. It was nominated for several awards and named Best Documentary at several festivals. So remember Jonathan and Nellie and this huge publicized custody battle that basically was where things started falling apart. Well, their son, Rami, who was four at the time of the custody hearing, he went on to become an artist. He even attended the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is actually where Alan Ross attended and taught. Rami told Bomb Magazine that Nellie eventually left the cult and reconciled with the children, but she and Jonathan didn't get back together. Rami said the family never talked about what happened. Rami also said that as of 2020, Julia still believes in Linda's teachings, and she is, quote, very active in trying to represent Linda's teachings under a different name, end quote. In 2013, Rami started researching the foundation and reaching out to former members. 
He wanted to unpack what happened to him as a child, as well as help his father, Jonathan, tell his side of the story. In 2020, Rami held an institutional solo exhibition at the MIT List Visual Arts Center. The exhibition included drawings and videos from Rami's time in the cult and art pieces Rami put together and more. Can you imagine seeing this, like this kid that went through it and and him processing everything? And I can't imagine a kid going through that, you know, like what your perspective is all this time later. So Mandy, are you ready to do last thing before we go? I am so ready for last thing before we go. From what I understand, we have a very special treat this week. Yes. Yeah, so this week we have my favorite YouTuber is here whose birthday is July 3rd. So this famous YouTuber just turned 10 yesterday when you're listening to this. Double and digits. he's going to double digits and he's going to come in and talk to us for a minute about I think killer bees is the subject he wanted to talk about. Yeah, One second. Caterpillars. Okay. Okay. So favorite YouTuber, you're here to talk to us. Tell Miss Mandy what you're going to talk about. Plus caterpillars and killer bees. All right. All right. Go ahead. First of all, does Miss Mandy have any um, question, or does she have any knowledge of puss cal- caterpillars or killer bees? Don't touch this. Do you have any knowledge? Sorry, I have. I don't not have a ca- a microphone like this. I have a blue snowball. It's the same. It works the same. I don't have any knowledge about either one of those things. Okay, I'll talk about it. Um. Anyways, these puss caterpillars. I'll talk about them first, which are the least amount of deadly. They haven't killed a person yet. That's good. Yet. Put your head back some so you can hear it. Okay, I'll I'll put it up here. Anyways, these puss caterpillars are found in Florida, Central Florida, and Miami. Arkansas, New Jersey for some reason. <laughs> Why did you laugh? That wasn't even that funny. <laughs> okay, stop. What do they look like? A hairy caterpillar with yellow fur. Hmm. Should you touch them? No. All right. What else are you going to talk about? A lot of people who got, unfortunately, the poison went into some of the people in Florida, mainly Florida, and Costa Rica. It's very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot to mention Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is where they're the most deadly, the biggest... And if, if you've ever seen something that looks like Donald Trump's wig. <laughs> okay. That's what the caterpillars look like. Caterpillar? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Killer bees. They okay. just look like bees, but a little darker. Well, how do I know if it's a killer bee or just a regular one? It has more black than yellow. Okay. So you have to get really close to be able to tell. Found in... Florida and all of U.S. <gasps> That's scary. And Canada, some parts of Canada, some parts of Canada. Uh huh. And um, South America, and the Caribbean. Okay. I will talk about bullet ants as well. Well, hurry and talk about bullet ants because this is your time. Okay, killer bees. If one stings you, a lot are gonna sting you. Last bullet thing. ants. Bullet ants. The most excruciating animal. That's unimaginable pain. Basically, it it just has a poison that makes it excruciating. Mm-hmm. Okay, bye. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you. YouTuber. Everyone's favorite YouTuber. Yes. Everyone learned so much. Thank you there, buddy. 
if you want people to get featured, just know that you will never unless, even if you upload the same videos as me like a copycat. That's good to you know. Won't. You still won't be featured. That's right. Because you no. are the original. Right. And uh, and if you make a copycat channel of me, I'll block you. All right. Well, there's threats happening now, so I'm going to release you from this. Thank you for joining us. Um, Is it done with the show? Because I haven't ever been in a Moms and Mysteries episode. Yeah, this is it. Do you want to help me when we say goodbye? Miss Mandy's going to help us say goodbye, and you can help me with that. Okay. All right. This is the first time being featured on, like, a popular... Ooh, popular. Um, podcast? Mm-hmm. It won't be the last time. You did great. Because I might be in the future. Yeah. Scottish flag? Where's the Scottish flag? Okay, here's the Scottish flag. Let her finish us up. Yes. (laughs) We've got our (laughs) flags. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I feel like I learned a lot about killer bees and puss caterpillars. Well, the main thing I learned is that I don't want to be anywhere near either one of those types of bugs. (laughs) Yeah, no. Especially (laughs) puss caterpillars. Yes, I will definitely stay away from those. Your desk recorded. All right, guys, that was the episode for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week, everybody. Say bye. 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 I hope no one heard.